stories. Fish stories. Fish stories. Sharing fish stories is best when you when you have somebody who has been there and been there with you. Here we go, Fish Stories Nation from Fishing Buddy Studios. It's the Fish Stories Podcast, where I introduce you to amazing anglers and fishing stories from all around the world. Today's guest is not only a nerd when it comes to fish, fishing, and eating fish, but an audio nerd as well. Clay Groves is the chief executive fish nerd of the Fish Nerds Podcast, something he's been doing for over five years. Now 200 episodes strong, they have a lot of information about fish and many funny moments to show for it. Clay is a licensed fishing guide who enjoys educating people about our natural resources and how we can keep them sustainable. Before we get into my conversation with Clay, I want to plug our first live event in Main Street Square, Rapid City, Sodak, Thursday, August 9th from 6 to 9 p.m. I'm still looking for someone really famous to join me on stage for a live interview, so if that's you or you know of that person, you better email buddy at fishstories.org. While you're online, you might as well check out some of the new featured stories we have and some of the great audio we've recorded. And upload your own stories to the archive. It's a really easy process and a rewarding experience. Thanks for doing it. Well, without further ado, here's Clay Groves. Enjoy the conversation. All right, I'm speaking today with Clay Groves, who's an award-winning environmental educator, a licensed fishing guide, and, and host of the Fish Nerds podcast, straight out of New Hampshire. Clay, welcome to Fish Stories. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's always fun to talk to other podcasters because uh, you get it. You understand our world. We share the world. I can certainly empathize you with you in that regard. Uh, and I can learn a lot from you as well. Gosh, you guys have... 200 some 200 episodes under your belt now uh we're we're coming up on our 200 we have we're 193 um as of now and we're working on planning our 200th episode extravaganza we're going to record it live on a uh, fishing pontoon boat so it's gonna be a lot of fun is that now is that your new fishing pontoon boat my brand bragging yeah (laughs) yeah my brand new i'm just i just bought a brand new boat uh my first new anything and uh I'm going to use it for podcasting and for fishing. How many times do you bring that up in a day? Uh, I tell everybody, like if I'm at the local Cumberland Farms getting a cup of coffee, anyone in line gets to hear about it. If I am at the bank, they hear about it. Anyone who, who, will, who will look at me, I go, oh, I got a boat. <laughs> I'm like a seven-year-old. Guess what I got? <laughs> a boat. <laughs> I figured that was the case. That's why I wanted to ask. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I would be too, though. So I I, <laughs> I, I would hope that that... that that's how it would be. So, yeah. And so you were telling me off. I'm going to ask you some questions. You were telling me that you are uh, opposed to pontoon boats. You have a, a problem <laughs> with them. And so I want to dig in on that a little bit with you. So, you have, do you have a family? I have a family. Do you, what do you drive for a vehicle for your family? Oh, we have a minivan and I have a, a okay, tr- truck good. pickup. That's, that's, that, right. So, you have a minivan. Right? <laughs> I do have a minivan. Was a minivan, was a minivan your first choice when you first started having kids? 
You know what? Uh, I didn't have a choice. It was my wife's. Cho- it was <laughs> really my wife's do. choice. So, did was that the was that the? So my wife avoided minivans. She was like, "Let's get an SUV." We did an SUV for three years, and then we got a minivan. I went, "Oh, this is perfect," and and so that's where I was going with that. So, so the minivan is actually the perfect family thing, right? For sure. And so when we were boat shopping, I was like, "I don't want a pontoon boat. I want a boat that can." fit seven or eight people comfortably and can go into shallow water and do all these things. So I'm looking at these like almost pontoon boats, like the SUV of boats. And my wife says, the, the, you know, the minivan's perfect. Just like the pontoon boat is perfect for what you want to do. Get the pontoon boat. Skip all the steps in between and get over your pontoon boat ego. Because I suffer from what you suffer from, which is it's a pontoon boat, honestly. <laughs> so. Well, maybe I might have to get over it. We'll <laughs> we'll see. Although I would be very much like you in my trepidation to buying a new boat uh, mm-hmm. would be very difficult for me. I think so. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and the one I got has a giant motor on it, so I can pull water skiers. Like I I I, I figure I'm going to do it. I might as well uh, might as well go big. Go big or and go so, home. Yeah. Yeah. So well, that's, that's my my rationale there. Anyway. Yeah, very very good. So well, I know you've got some awesome fishing stories, Clay, and and I want to hear more about the Fish Nerds podcast for sure. But before we do that, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So, um, did you grow up in New Hampshire? I did not. Uh, my parents were both in the military and and the Coast Guard, so I grew up up and down both coasts. So I've lived in California, in Washington, New York, New Jersey. Massachusetts, uh, and so I and I fished my whole life up and down both uh, shorelines. And in fact, uh, in New Hampshire, I moved to New Hampshire in when I was an adult, and I moved here because I liked the license plates. It said "Live Free or Die." And I thought, man, that's cool. That's awesome. I'm going there. I'm going to go live free. It turns out it's not free anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a nice plug for the license plates of New Hampshire. Yeah, they're pretty good. Did you did you have a fishing mentor when you were young? Uh, my stepmother, she was, uh, one of the best fishers I know. And we went out, uh, we had, my dad had a boat and we'd fish all the time and she could catch anything. And every second of free time she had was spent fishing. And she kind of made me really nerdy about, uh, about learning how to fish, how to catch different kinds of fish and learning habitat and techniques and all that sort of thing. She wasn't like a fly fisherman. She was a, you know, chopped up bait fisher person. She was not into into fishing with lures or anything like that, but I learned a lot from her. That's kind of a cool origin story. I mean, you don't hear that a lot where, you know, a stepmother, I guess, of all people would be the one that, that really fueled your passion for fishing. Yeah, I mean, it started. And then I, when I moved to New Hampshire, I went for a long time without fishing at all because I was living about an hour from the ocean and freshwater fishing was, was brand new to me. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it. And then one day I was taking a ride up uh, in the mountains past a lake called Squam Lake. And I, I saw this old guy out there on the ice with a pile of uh, little perch at his feet. So the only thing at that point I knew about ice fishing was it required beer. So I went to the local convenience store. I bought a six pack of beer. I walked out in the ice, put it down next to him. And I said, can you show me how to do that? And I pointed at the fish and he grabbed one of my beers, cracked the top off it, handed me a rod and then he pulled an eyeball off a little perch and put it on a hook, and then I caught my first fish through the ice. And ever since then, I've been hooked, although I don't generally use eyeballs for bait. I still think that's gross. 
That's, <laughs> it's a good bait, though. Yeah. We use it in South Dakota. It <laughs> it's so good. It shouldn't be that good. It's so horrible. <laughs> you're right. You're right. But your first, so your first fish through the ice came on a perch eyeball. Um, with what was that? What was that guy's name? Do you did you get to know him any uh, after that? No, we didn't talk at all. Nice. Like he just he drank my beer and gave me a rod. <laughs> and and I only fished for about twenty five minutes because I you know if if you've never ice fished before you ice fish right? Yes, I do. But if one has never ice fished before and they're like twenty two years old, odds are good they're wearing sneakers and jeans and a sweatshirt and lots of cotton clothes and not dressed for the ice. So I didn't last long on my first trip on the ice. <laughs> yeah. And it, so I wasn't, I was ill prepared, you know, and now I'm a, I'm a fishing guide, ice fishing guide, uh, and just starting year round service. So it's now I'm all comfortable on the ice all the time. But, but yeah, I went for years where it just sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you do when you weren't fishing then when you, so you got to New Hampshire, is that kind of when you got into to teaching and everything? Yeah, I got to New Hampshire. Actually, I worked in music for quite a long time, managing uh, music stores. And then in the uh, mid-90s, uh, music stores started folding up and going out of business. You know, we had this huge peak of cool music in the 90s, and then as digital music unfolded, all the music, music stores started closing, and I lost my job, I ended up uh, unemployed, and I, I ended up uh, doing a couple of years of AmeriCorps, which is a national service. I did that in an uh, inner-city school where I actually, believe it or not, I taught science uh, in an after-school program. Uh, and the program was called Adopt a Salmon, and it, re- and it required me to learn. All, you know, I would, for training one day, the next day I would teach the class. Training one day, teach the class. So it required me to learn about rivers and habitats and fisheries and science and all this tech stuff. And that's where I got hooked on teaching kids and working with fish in classrooms and that sort of thing. And from there, um, after doing that for a couple of years, I got a job for New Hampshire Audubon as a naturalist educator, and I was their fish guy. I worked at a fish uh, ladder vader, fish 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 elevator, <laughs> fish uh, ladder. <laughs> I can't say ladder. I almost said elevator. At a fish ladder in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I helped um, educate people about salmon migration, shad, herring, lamprey, eels, uh, and then I kind of got hooked into that more that kind of more formal teaching, and then from there I became a science teacher for a few years, um, and now I I write grants and direct after school programs and encourage lots of science in after school as well. So my day job is a grant writer. Took a, in fact, we have a deadline I'm chasing right now. I took a break to call you. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for doing that. Hopefully, sure. you still meet that sure. deadline. I don't want to be the. I don't want to be the uh, reason. Oh yeah, 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 you're done. If I don't meet the deadline. <laughs> it's game over. I'm going to sell you out. <laughs> How did Fish Nerds come to be? Was it? Was it? It's the, it was a collaboration between you and and Dave. Um, how did you and Dave come together and meet up? And and how did Fish Nerds come to be? Yeah, so years ago, Dave Callum, who was my previous partner in this business, he was uh, the director of the Audubon Center where I taught about fish. So he was my boss, and he was a fish nerd from the Midwest, from Indiana. And so both of us were just passionate about fish and fishing and talking about fish. We both left that job, and years had gone by, and he hadn't been talking to me. I hadn't talked to him. And one winter, he said, Clay, let's go fishing. I said, sure. And then while we were fishing, he said, hey, I want to do something big. I want to do something that no one's done before. Uh, I want to um, go on an epic angling quest, and I need someone uh, who will do it with me. He knows I never say no to anything. I'm always like, sure, let's do it. Uh, so he goes, do you want to catch every kind of freshwater fish in New Hampshire and write about it? And I said, sure, but let's eat them too. 
because I wanted to level it up, you know, because anyone can catch a fish. But eating all the fish challenges us a little bit more, and it makes it more interesting to talk about. So he said, sure, let's do it. And we gave ourselves one year to catch and eat every kind of freshwater fish in the state of New Hampshire, and there are 48 of them. And we called the quest the Catch Em All Quest. It was be, we weren't the fish nerds yet. We hadn't, hadn't branded ourselves that way yet. So it was, it was catch-m-all was our website, catchemall.com. And we were having a great time. Did, it, did you get it done in one year? No. Uh, so so what happened is, is we started the quest and we got about 20 species in before it started getting really hard. You know, because catching game fish is easy. Anyone can catch a bass or a pike or a pickerel, right? But when you get into these the, the minnows and you're looking at long-nosed days and short-nosed days, black-nosed days, creek chubs, creek chug suckers, all these different kinds of minnows suddenly it becomes a bigger challenge. Species fishing is harder than fishing because you're going for very targeted specific fish. Uh, and and so we, we were working really hard towards it. In that first year, though, we did switch our name to the Fish Nerds. We uh, were on a statewide TV show called New Hampshire Chronicle. And in that interview with them, Dave said, we're Fish Nerds, uh, just as casual conversation. And then we went home and looked on the internet and nobody had bought the domain so we quickly grabbed it and trademarked it. It's ours now. And, <laughs> and we became the fish nerds. And we were writing for a bunch of magazines and newspapers. We got about, um, first year, we got about 40 species of the 48 in. And then it took us another almost two years to get the last eight. Uh, and it was very, very difficult. And there's one fish that it's eluding us to this point. And Fishing Game told me it was extinct. And then last summer, someone caught one and sent me a text with a picture of it. So now I have to get it. I've got to go back. So I'm technically not done. We had to, we undid one fish. What's the, what's <laughs> that last fish? What's a, what's eluded you to this point? Uh, the lake whitefish, and and uh, the reason that they they got extinct in New Hampshire or near extinct is because back in the 70s and 80s they messed around with the dam levels on all the lakes where those fish existed, and they kept dropping the ice on the spawning beds because the fish those fish spawn I think under the ice, and so when you put ice on top of uh, eggs, it's bad for them. And so they, they wrecked the populations. And so they're pretty rare fish in the state. Uh, they're not even legal to keep. So if I catch one, I'm not allowed to kill it. I have to, I've got to be gentle with it and take its picture, even though I desperately <laughs> want to kill one. I just want to cut its freaking head off. I, 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 I'm fish made me so mad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, cause out where you are, they're common, right? I mean, they're not a, they're not a rare fish. Yeah. Close to us. Minnesota has a lot of white fish. Uh, as does as does Montana and Wyoming. We don't we don't have. I'm going to be Minnesota. honest. I I don't know where Nebraska is or Minnesota or any of those central okay. <laughs> states. It's flyover they, country. They don't make any sense to me. <laughs> it's fly, <laughs> it's flyover country. We're right in the you know actually the geographic center of the United States is in South Dakota. So that well, that'll, we're right in the middle. Well, perfect. So you can get anywhere from where you're at. That's exactly. We can, of course. We can get anywhere. We just have to take, uh, <laughs> we usually take sheep wagons and cattle. So, Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> primitive, primitive here in, in South Dakota. I love it. So you, who caught the state record channel catfish? So that was uh, a group effort. Dave gets credit because um, he was the one who hooked it. But we, we, that, was, that was an interesting day. We, we went out to the Connecticut River in the southwestern corner of New Hampshire, which New Hampshire is a triangle. And at that spot, there's a big dam. And channel catfishes are very, very new to New Hampshire, like less than 10 years in the state. They've been brought up here by bucket biologists, by anglers, bringing them up in buckets and dumping them in the waters, which is bad news. 
And we got a room, heard rumor that there was some big catfish down there. So we hiked out. It was about a three-mile hike through the woods to the fishing spot. And we hiked out there with chicken livers. And Dave, Dave put one on a hook and just no weight, just a big giant hook in the water. And about 20 minutes later, had a massive fish on. He hooked it. I netted it. And immediately we knew it was bigger than the state record, which at the time was, I think, nine pounds. And this was 13 almost. So we could tell right away it was a record, and then we had to go through the process of certifying it as a record, which is harder than you think. And I bet you people catch records all the time and just don't bother certifying them because it's such a pain in the neck. In New Hampshire, you have to go find a deli or a or a supermarket that will let you use their certified scales. Only most delis and supermarkets won't let you, let you bring a big dead catfish into their store to weigh them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a problem. It is a problem. So we, we walked into the supermarket, this is the middle of nowhere, in Hinsdale, New Hampshire, with this five-gallon bucket and a giant catfish kind of flopping out of it. And we had a fishing game officer with us. Luckily, we called, um, called a fishing game guy in. And we walked in the store. Immediately, we were thrown out of the store. And then the manager came running out and said, look, just come around the back. And we snuck around the back, and we weighed it on their certified scale and certified as a record. And next thing you know, Dave had the state record fish, and we called it the last fish in the quest. Uh, until now. <laughs> so, What a way to end the quest, though. I thought it was a pretty epic ending. And then we had to eat the stupid thing. And uh, Dave's a terrible cook. And he, we did char, charred catfish, uh, charbroiled catfish. So he took the whole catfish, skinned it, and stuck it on the grill. Uh, and it, it came out really terribly, really bad. Because <laughs> you know how to cook catfish. You're supposed to fry them. You just bread them and fry them. Keep it simple. Because they don't taste good enough to charbroil. <laughs> you could have at least when you're at the deli you could have just had them butcher it for you and and uh get it ready for you uh you know i thought we thought about that we all we thought thought about having it mounted too and then decided not to spend any money because we didn't have any so we, we should have done that e- eating it was a close second option yeah and it just we wanted to just finish the stupid quest it's been going on this one year quest i've been pushing almost three years now and we're like just get it done just, just eat the stupid thing you know and the funny thing is you get quest fishing like this and you start killing the fish the urge to kill the first thing you ever see in nature is insane. So, like, imagine if you're a bird watcher, and the first time you ever see an eagle, like, well, I'm going to shoot it. Or the first time you blue jay, I'm going to shoot it, and just kill the first example of each. Oh, that's what John James Audubon did. Never mind. Forget that example. But <laughs> So we're not the first people to, 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 to collect animals this way. But it's, uh, it's, it's kind of fun, and, and you, you get like emotional sometimes because once in a while you'll catch a really cool fish that you've never seen before, and you'll feel a little bad killing it. Uh, the catfish, we actually felt bad about. It was such a big, beautiful fish and such a big thing. I hate, I hate seeing large fish being killed, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't have done it, <laughs> Yeah, but we did it. Yeah, especially because it tasted horrible too, right? Well, yeah, and there's no value in, in it because we didn't eat the whole thing, and yeah. It just tasted terrible. We took a couple of bites and we're like, yeah, that's did, it. We're done. Did you get any negative feedback from this quest? Yeah, lots of it. It was great. Yeah, <laughs> lots of people would, would – because one of the goals of the quest was educating people about the different kinds of fish. seems like everyone only cares about like six species. Sure. And by catching and killing these fish and cooking them, we're drawing attention to underutilized fish, fish no one cares about. And conservation. And a lot of people would say, if you care about the fish so much, why would you kill them? You know, why, why kill them? You know, like the fish are so much better off alive. And they make a good point, except for just catching them doesn't get people's attention. And so we have that sacrificial fish. You know, and we had quest rules. One of the rules in the quest was we had to eat the first legal example of each fish we caught. 
So like the, the first fish on the quest, second fish on the quest was the yellow perch and it was a three inch yellow perch. But in New Hampshire, that's legal fish. So we, we had to eat that fish. And just so happened with the catfish, it happened to be the biggest one ever caught. So it's just the way it works out. Uh, but yeah, we got some feedback on that. Lots of people didn't like it. We kept hoping that uh, PETA would come and protest us. They do topless protesting in New Hampshire. And that would be okay. really fun to, to have them, you know, protesting us while we're fishing. It'd be great. But they didn't show up. They don't care. I do have a lo- I had, do have a local, I did it for, she moved away. I did have a local woman who protests us a lot here in the White Mountains where I live. She protested to the point, we were on NPR, she would call NPR and tell them she was going to get rid of their funding and vote against them and all this stuff because she had the, we had the fish nerds on the radio. <laughs> it's great. I love it. <laughs> Creating some controversy it. in New Hampshire. Yeah, and, and we're not mean though. So like I, we're never, we never yell back at someone. We never beat anybody up. We don't, you know, it's, we're just fishing. Yeah, for sure. So what, what fish... Or was there a fish or a catch that meant the most to you during your guys' quest? Uh, well, in the first fish, you know, the, when you really first get started, I mean, meant the most. The first fish we targeted was the burbot. Do you have the burbot out there? Husk? We do. We have eel pout. Yeah, eel pout. Um, they've got like 27 names. Loda Loda. Fish so nice. They named, named it twice. Um, really fun fish to catch. And primarily you catch them through the ice because they, they do this hibernation thing in the summertime. And we decided our first night of the quest, we're going to go out and jig them up. And having, neither one of us had ever jigged up a cusk before, but we had a plan. So we went out and we sat in a shanty. It was like 10 below zero. We're in this little tent. It's windy as hell out. And we fished for about three hours and nothing. Couldn't touch a fish. Uh, so we, we regrouped and went to got, got, get a cup of coffee. And the next day I went out and put cusk traps out. Do you, you guys use cusk traps out where you are? We might, just a set might have line. a different name. Yeah, yeah. What I use, I, I take a paint, paint stirrer and I take some string and tie it to it, drop it to the bottom of the lake um, with a one ounce or greater sinker, and then a hook six inches from there with a piece of dead fish on it. That's how you people cusk fish in New Hampshire. And you put them out and you pick them up once every 24 hours. So the next day I put them out and, the, you know, 20 hours later I picked up five cusk, easy. And that fish meant the most at the beginning because that's the one. Okay, now we're doing it. And because we had sold this story to two magazines, we had to keep going. We had to write the story, publish it, and then next week get a new fish. And so once we got it going, um, it was really fun. And that first like six months where you're catching a new fish every week was, was, was a blast and so exciting. And what it really does for you is it makes you value uh, species of fish that you don't care about more, like a golden shiner, such a common bait fish, but really, really delicious to eat. You know, you cut the head off, you know, and gut them and then roll them in flour and fry them and dip them in chipotle sauce. It's so, so good. And and no one thinks about eating them. Or smoked common shiners, put them on a cracker with some Vidalia onion. Lovely, lovely little fish. And so you appreciate fish more when you do a quest like this. That's a that's a really interesting point. We have a lot of bait fish in Lake Oahe, just north of Pier here. And, and there's only a hand, a small contingent of people who go out and and attempt to catch these fish for consuming them, um, even though you know everyone says they're delicious, but nobody goes because everyone wants to just catch a big walleye or a big smallmouth or a big northern. That's well, you know, walleye are walleye are delicious. There's no getting around it. They definitely <laughs> so, are. That's true. Yeah, but other things are. Too. You know, everything eats minnows, right? So it, it seems to make sense that a minnow would taste good. Oh yeah, definitely. You think about it. every fish eats them, then maybe they're delicious. So give them a shot. Eat a minnow. 
So this journey of your guys the, to catch all 48 species um, was originally a writing project. So how did the Fish Nerds podcast, how did it evolve into a podcast form, an audio form uh, endeavor? Great question. Well, we had a couple of like early hits where we got to be on public radio and talk about it. People really wanted to have this conversation that you're having right now. And, and that was really fun for us. But then we got involved with um, writing really deep and we wanted to write a book. And so we entered a, a book pitching contest called Pitch a Palooza. And it's like American Idol. You got like, you know, there's, there's 25 contestants and a couple hundred people in the audience and three judges. You have one minute to sell your book idea to these judges. And we pitched our book to the panel and to the audience, and we won uh, Pitch a Palooza. And what we won was a, a New York City um, writing agent. And he started shopping our book to different publishers. And we kept getting feedback from publishers. They kept saying, great concept, a lot of fun, good writing to New Hampshire, and you don't reach enough people outside the state with your current Facebook and website and all that stuff. And so we're like, well, shit. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're working so hard. And like, and we're like, there's lot, lots of books are regional. You know, they start off regionally, but, you know, whatever. You know, you can't argue with them. They make the... They make the decision. So we one day just decided to launch a podcast. We had never podcasted before. We didn't have any equipment. And at the time, I was a science teacher. So I grabbed I grabbed some headphones um, from my classroom, and we just pushed record in a program called Audacity and record the first podcast. And it was terrible. It was awful. And we were so proud of it. We didn't know it was terrible at the time. At the time we, <laughs> sure. we were like, yes, this is good. And we called it the Fish Nerds. We put it up on um, Apple Podcast, iTunes at the time. And, you know, we got our first listener and started getting feedback right away. And we're like, wow, we're really on to something. And we've been doing it uh, now. It's going on five years ago now, uh, ever since. And I say we, I mean, it's just me now. My partner quit because we don't make money. And as you know, there's no real money in podcasting. Yeah, we just do it for the, you know, I just keep, I can't stop because I like talking to people too much. And if I didn't have a podcast, I'd be a hermit. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, we've been doing it now. I've been doing it five years. Um, We now have fans all around the world. We have, um, my favorite thing about our show is we have, um, we have Fish Nerds correspondents. They started off as fans and they kept sending us little audio things that they recorded and we kept using them in the show to the point where like, well, why don't you just become part of the show? So now the Fish Nerds podcast went from being two guys talking like car talk to now being more like a uh, magazine style show where it's segmented up. So we might have a biologist or a chef or a lore manufacturer, a fly fisherman, uh, any kind of segment we want, want to do, we have it there. So it's a variety show and a lot of fun and hopefully people are enjoying it and we're growing like crazy every month. We keep just keep growing, which is great. And uh, maybe someday we'll make money. Who knows? But mostly I do it for fun. I really just like talking about fish. So you get to talk with a lot of fishy people. What's what's one big thing that you've learned? So you've been doing this for five years. What, what have you learned from these people who fish and people who know about fish that maybe you didn't know before you started doing this? Well, what I've learned is, is nobody really knows anything. Everyone just knows their little piece of the world. And, and and even the best fisher people you talk to want to learn a new technique or a new style or learn about a new fish. So like you might be talking to like the, you know, the best bass angler in the country and he might have a question about walleye fishing. Or you might be talking to a spear fisherman from Australia and he wants to talk about ice fishing. So what I, what I know is that fish nerds are fish nerds. Uh, and like I said, our show is not just about fishing. 
we have biologists on the show almost every week. And so learning about the biology of the fishes and the science behind it, I think, makes you a better fisher. Like if you understand why a fish acts the way it acts or she acts, um, you'll catch more of them. So we just every week learn more stuff. And then my favorite thing too, I have a lot of favorite things, uh, is is I'm very self-indulgent. Uh, the show really is my ego uh, in audio form. And so uh, like one of my favorite musicians from 20 some odd years ago is putting out a new record. He has nothing to do with fishing really. And I reached out to him because he's doing a Kickstarter project and that's on this, this most recent show. And I said, hey, you want to come on the show and promote your, uh, your new record? And... Uh, he said, sure, I've been fishing once. <laughs> I said, great, come on on the show. And, it, and just, just as a selfish act, you know, you have these people on who you like, you know, it's kind of like, not idolize, but like who you really respect as an artist. And you're like, and, they'll, and, they, and now they're, they're in your peer group all of a sudden because you've got this platform. You've built this thing that looks like a real thing if you Google it. They don't know you're in your basement, you know, in your guest's be- bedroom <laughs> recording, you know, hiding under a blanket. They don't know right. these things. Yeah. Why do you think teaching people about fish is so important? Well, so so we have a um we have a deficit of brainy people these days. I think that people are get locked in on on ideas that are either dumb or don't make any sense. Uh in and we need people to be thinking more. And the best way to think more is to expose yourself to more ideas, especially things you maybe you don't know about or you disagree with. And I think that's important. I also just, my own, this again, self-indulgent, I like learning about fish. I just like it. And my show is, I do what I like because it's my show. And having the bio, I have several biologists on, you know, on, as correspondents now, allows me to like say something and then get corrected by someone who knows better. And I am wrong all the time. Like if you're getting fishy, fish advice about like science from me, Double check everything I say because I'm wrong. A <laughs> Just lot. in case. But my, yeah, but the biologists I have on the show are right most of the time. And so we have that nice kind of go between. Uh, this week's show, they did 20 minutes on the spotted bass. Everything from biology and spotting behavior to how to catch them. They had 20 minutes called Fish of the Day. And they do that every few weeks or so. We get a new fish that we just get to learn tons about. And it's great. Do you, do you have any regrets about the process or do you have any regrets about doing it? Um, I regret that I haven't made a bigger effort to sell advertising on the show. You can you hear this theme throughout the thing where I keep saying we don't make any money. Um, going five years in now, um, it's getting to the point now where it's so much work and there's so much content out there. It'd be nice to have monetized it earlier, even for a little bit of money at a time. And because and, it is, you know, making a podcast isn't free, even though you produce it for free, you give it away, you don't make much on it. Um, so my regrets is not finding a, a, a revenue stream. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Other than that, I love it. I don't, <laughs> I don't have regrets as far as making the content goes. I love making the content. I love making the show. I don't get tired of it. I don't find it boring. Uh, and as soon as I do, I'm going to stop because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any advice for anyone who um, is dreaming about maybe becoming a professional fishing guide or an outdoor communicator? Yeah, well, first of all, if you're not already writing start writing because that's where it starts if you can't write you're not gonna you know you're gonna fail at a lot of other things because people that's where the even your primary communication on the podcast still comes from outlining and planning so writing is a planning process uh if you want to become a guide i actually did last year a whole series on how to become a fishing guide i I, the reason i opened the guide service was part of the show i had a caller call in and say hey clay 
can you do a series on how to become a fishing guide? So I called a guy who ran a guide school and he said, how, why don't you come to guide school and, and do a story about it? And in exchange, well, you know, you can, we'll advertise on your show. So I just traded, they didn't pay me any money, but I bartered guide school. And then I just did a whole series on how to open a guide service. Um, my advice is there's no real money there either. Um, so start off part, start off part time, but realize like if you really want to make a living at it, you have to charge a lot of money and you have to have other revenue streams as well, like writing or podcasting or something else to drive money there because guides, they make a lot per trip, but they probably need to do two trips a day to make it a real good living. I did the math on my business plan. I wrote a business plan and if I was going to make $50,000 a year guiding, I need to guide 333 trips a year. That's a long. That's a lot of fishing. Yeah, it's a lot of fishing. That's with me investing in the business, not just me taking all the cash I'm paid and keeping it. That's that's a business plan I've written. It's, so some of the money goes to boat maintenance, to insurance payments. There's a lot of other other expenses, the relationship to to being a guide. But um, as far as being a fish, an outdoor communicator, just start doing it. You know, if you've never podcasted before and you want to try making a podcast, push record. And start talking and see how it goes, and and you know we is it having a partner helps a lot. Having someone else who's as nerdy as you are makes a big difference. Um, I think if I didn't have a partner for the first few years of this, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, and and now I just do it because my fans are my partners, and so I have that help. But it, it's not easy, as you know, and it's a lot of work. And feedback is very thin. You don't get a lot of feedback, so you just do it and do it and do it and hope that you're reaching people and making a difference and. As long as you're having fun, you know, that's the important thing. Don't don't jump into being an outdoor communicator for money unless uh, you have a plan, which I don't. That That's a really, that's those are really advice. good points. <laughs> it's oh. terrible advice. <laughs> very good, very good points though all around. Do you, are there any fishing trends here in the world today that you wish would go away? Uh, you know, I, I want to see catch and kill um, fishing, derby, ice fishing derbies go away. In New Hampshire, we have a, a derby called the Great Rotary Ice Fishing Derby. It's a huge um, statewide fishing derby, and it's uh, based on catching the biggest fish in each category. And they catch these huge lake trout or or crappies or whatever, and they hang them on this big wall. And, you know, so they're killing thousands of fish all in one weekend, and they're killing just the big ones. And I think catch-and-kill derbies for large fish is awful for the industry, awful for fish. Uh, good for e- economy. I mean, the local economy makes tons of money on it. But there's got to be a better way than killing every trophy you see. So I want to see catch-and-kill derbies. Uh, I don't want to make any laws against them, but I want them to be just just uncool. I want to make them trend away. Because you know, we, te- we have technology now. We can do catch-and-photograph <laughs> um, large fish just as well, or better even. You know, and it don't, you don't need to hang a dead fish on a wall anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. And Matt, just think about all of the potential fish that are being taken out of the system that could just create such better fisheries. Well, you know, no kidding. I mean, so we have, I'm, I'm involved in all these fish nerds, uh, fish nerds, so all these fishy Facebook groups on, on, in New Hampshire. And people are on there going, you know, I'm noticing a lack of large lake trout in New Hampshire. What do you think's going on? And I'm like, you guys killed them all and hung them on a wall. That's, that's what's going on. You, every year you kill a couple thousand of these giant fish and they're all the big breeders. What do you think's going on? You know, bass tournaments um, don't kill the bass. They they learned a long time ago killing big fish is bad. So the fact that we do it in ice fishing tournaments is wacky. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you 100. percent 
So do you, you have, uh, you have, I'm sure you have a lot of great fishing stories. Do you have one that you tell more often than other than others? Um, I, I, I heard one about a fish ladder and a big storm one time. I don't know if that's maybe one of your favorite ones or. Yeah, that's well that, that, so I'll tell that story. That's a really good one. That's my, my near death fishing story. So it's a short one, which is good. So years ago, when I used to work in Manchester, New Hampshire, the Amiskeg Dam, Amiskeg means great fishing place. It's uh, from the Abenaki um, Indians. And uh, it used to be a big fishery for for the Native Americans at that area. And there's a fish ladder there where where I used to work. I had keys to get into the river below the dam where no one had access. Because I worked there, and so one one day my my friend uh, Tattoo Dan and I went went fishing because below the dam, you as you know, anytime you're with it yeah, where, where there's a dam, there's good fishing below it. The fish just stack up in the pools below the dam, and and we like to go there for smallmouth bass fishing. And so we we drove down to the bottom of the dam, got the canoe off the off the car, opened the gate, canoed across the river, and tied the canoe to a tree. Now, the dam is 715 feet across and about, uh, I think it's 60 feet high or something like that. So it's a pretty big, long dam. Holds back a lot of water. Now, at the top of the dam are these um, metal poles with plywood behind them. And that plywood actually holds up three extra feet of water. And those boards are called splash boards. And they're designed to fail. And what happens is when a certain amount of water piles behind them, the big metal bars bend, the boards fall down, and waterfall opens up. And there was a huge storm happening about 30 miles north of us that we were not aware of. And so we're fishing in the river, having a great time, uh, catching tons of fish. And uh, next thing you know, we hear just this noise behind us, and we look behind us, and these big boards have started falling off the dam. And of course... Right then, the alarm goes off to get out of the water. Wonk, wonk, wonk. You know, like <laughs> water's rising. The alarm came, you know, too late. <laughs> it's already happening. Yeah. So, the, so these boards fall off. Water starts rushing over the dam. Our canoe is tied to a tree on a, you know, on an island. And very quickly, we watch the water rise up. We climb up to some like higher ground in the middle of the river. And our canoe is now floating, no longer on an island. It's now tied to a tree floating. And we have water everywhere around us. So my friend Dan and I grab our fishing rods, put them on our teeth, and jump into the river feet first, and we kind of butt bounce our way through the rapids down to the canoe. We grab our canoe, get in the boat, untie it, and, you know, it's, by now we're soaked and wet. Um, there's tons of water flying over the dam, and we're able to canoe back across the river to the car. And we get to the car, and we look up, and there's uh, helicopters flying over our heads. There's a guy on top of the dam with binoculars, a cop or a fireman or something, looking at the river, and there's Zodiac boats in the water behind us. So we drive up the hill and uh, to, to where the guy with the, with the, with the binoculars is. Um, we get out of the car, and we're soaking wet, and we're just dripping with obvious that we've been in the river. And I said, what's, what's going on? He goes, uh, a couple of guys were fishing down there, and, and the, the flashboards gave away, and we're trying to find them. I said, huh, that's interesting, because we were just down there fishing, and we didn't see anybody. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we left. That was it. So, that's, so they, a, that's a story I tell a lot. Yeah, I like that. Did you? <laughs> who was the guy? You who's your fishing buddy that day? His name is uh, Tattoo Dan. He's a tattoo artist, and uh, we always called him Tattoo Dan. I don't. I just we we always had nicknames for everybody at the time. And he he's interesting because his whole his whole arm is colored red. I got you. I didn't catch that at first, so I wanted to clarify. Okay, I got yeah, you. Yeah, Tattoo now. Dan. Yeah, yeah, nice guy. So Clay, 
one more question for you, unless there's a couple other things we need to cover. But one big question I, I like to ask people are, when the next generation or when your your great-great-grandchildren listen to this many years from now, what's one thing that you would like them to know about you? Uh, well, I, I'd like them to know that I... Not just I, but like it's in my, I think it's in my whole family. Hopefully they're, they're feeling it too, is, uh, is be impulsive. <laughs> you know, just if, if you're inclined to try something new, this is how I am, you just give it a shot. Just do it. Don't spend time thinking about it. Don't plan, over plan it. Just get in and do it. You know, that's, the fish nerds came out of an impulse and we just decided one day, let's do it. And we just did it. And my kids are like this. They, my kids both are involved in the podcast. They both fish. They both do things. And they think that it's normal to be nerdy. And, and so my advice to everybody is find what you're nerdy about and do it. It doesn't matter. We're all nerdy about something. And embrace it and go with it and enjoy it and be that person who just knows that stuff and loves talking about it and have fun. Yeah. Or there's some, is there something you wanted to bring up that you didn't get to talk about? Uh, you know, right now there's 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 not much more. Uh, the, the, I think I made all my points, but really for for anybody who's thinking about listening to podcasts or if you want to support podcasts, uh, you know, when you listen to a podcast, especially independent podcasts like yours or mine, give feedback, send an email, go on on the Apple Podcast, leave a review, go on Facebook, uh, because feedback is what motivates you. When you get someone who says, "I heard your show, man, I love it," or I "Had a great time," or, "I have a question." That means more than anything. So give people feedback, check it out, and uh, support independent podcasters, and and just keep uh, keep on on going, you know, and, and find more more shows to listen to. Awesome. Well, Clay uh, Clay Groves from New Hampshire, Fish Nerds Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time, and thanks for the chat. I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, it's been way fun, and I'm gonna have to reciprocate and get you on my show because uh, there's more I want to ask you, but I want to you know. I want to have it on my show. <laughs> Clay, thank you for taking the time to help inspire us to get out and learn more about fish, fishing, and eating fish. And thanks for helping us find our inner nerd. I'm currently geeking out right now about the Bassmasters Elite Series, currently in my hometown of Pierce, South Dakota. I've met a few of these guys and they are just so good at what they do. I'm really excited to see what they pull out of Lake Oahe. Head over to the local Chamber of Commerce website at pier.org to find out more. Once you're done there, head over to fishstories.org and sign up for our newsletter and then become a true fan today. That's the only way we're going to be able to keep these artifacts of the fishing community alive for future generations. Thanks for doing it, and thanks for listening. Share this with anyone you want to impress, and don't forget to stay awesome. Have a great day. See you later. Adios. Jane. Bye-bye. Peace out.
fish stories. Fishing buddy. Hey, Bert. It's fishing season, Bert. Uh, what do you say we go looking for some fish, Bert? Here, fishy, 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 fishy.